as we go through it. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that, that the word, the Bible that you've given us is not just Matthew. It's not just the Exodus. But Lord, you have given us the law. You've given us the prophets the big ones and the little ones. You've given us the poetries. You've given us the wisdom literature. You've given us the gospels. You've given us the epistles. And Lord, you've shown us what lies in front of us in the revelation. Lord, this is by your good and perfect will that you've given us your word. And I pray that by your spirit, we would be able to understand it that Jesus, our Messiah, would be glorified in your word and that our hearts would be, would be lifted up and edified by beholding our Messiah, Jesus the Christ, our King, in your word that you've given us. Lord, give us understanding today. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you are familiar with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, you have at least some familiarity with this event. John doesn't talk about this event. That's a different subject. If you're new to Christianity, and I wanted to acknowledge there, there be many, maybe many of you here that are new to Christianity, you've never heard this story before that we just read. And if you hear it and you think, that's kind of weird, that's a strange story, you're right. It is a strange story. And for those of you who've heard it before, I want you to think as if you're reading this for the first time. And if you are, if you're reading this book, especially Matthew's gospel, for the first time, when you get to this event, you, if you're taking notes, if you're the type that writes in their Bible, and doesn't believe that's heresy or something, then, uh, then you probably put a lot of question marks in the Bible. If you've got one of those wide margin Bibles or a note-taking Bible, you've got question marks all over the place. What, what's going on here? Why is this guy glowing? We haven't seen Jesus glow like this before. Why are there only three? Why did he take only three disciples up the mountain with him? Why is he even on a mountain? Why are Moses and Elijah there? And on and on. This is a really, it seems out of place in Matthew's gospel. 
It's different. It stands out. It's an unusual event. It's understandable if to you this seems like an unusual event. I think you're, you're the right one here. And us Christians who are used to seeing this, I, I, hope, that, I hope that we will see that how peculiar this is. But this event happens for a number of reasons. And, and as we study this text this morning in Matthew 17, I hope you'll understand what those reasons are. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to break this down into, into three, not sections of text, but three kind of big overarching questions. So, so the first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at what's actually happening here in Matthew. Because remember, as we walk through Matthew, we're walking with the disciples, and the disciples are being impacted by what's going on. So our first kind of movement here is to address what's happening in Matthew with the disciples. And then we're going to zoom out and go to that 50,000-foot view where, where we look at the context of the big story of redemption, Genesis to Revelation. What's happening here on the Mount of Transfiguration, as we call it, in, in that context, in the greater context, the big story of the Bible? And then finally, we're going to ask, what does this have to do with me? Because sometimes we, we can get to a, an event like this that seems really big and momentous and with lots of theological implications and, and kind of miss out on how it is that it's to be applied to us. So those three questions. First one, Jesus and the disciples, what's happening here in Matthew? Well, if you were here the last couple of weeks, or, or if you've had the chance to cap up, catch up with last week's sermon, you'll know that at the end of last week's text, the end of Matthew chapter 16, Jesus encouraged the disciples by telling them that some of them some of those disciples standing there would see Jesus come into his kingdom, and they would see that while they were still living. And, and we saw how that coming into his kingdom was all a part of this crowning, conquering, enthroning sequence, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension into heaven. The disciples don't know that yet, not, not, as, Jesus, not as Matthew has told it to us at this point. But for those of us for, who have read further along in Matthew, Jesus is going to be crowned king when he's lifted up on the cross. He's announced as king when he's raised from the dead, and he's given his throne when he ascends into heaven. That's the coming into the kingdom Jesus is talking about in Matthew 16, 28. And we saw last week, 16, 28, that promise was one given to the disciples so that when it is fulfilled, it will give them confidence in the mission that they're about to begin in the book of Acts, the mission to take that announcement, the announcement of the king's rule all throughout the world. And so, so kind of in this Matthew context, in the, in the context with the disciples, what we're realizing here, before the disciples are sent on that mission to take the church, to take the gospel message to the world and establish churches all over the world, Jesus is preparing them. And so Jesus takes three of these disciples up on the mountain, and it's preparation. He's teaching them. Why only these three? Or why, why only three? We'll talk about that in a minute. Why only these three is another question. Well, we've got Peter there. And Peter, as we've seen, is sort of the, the spokesman, the unofficial leader of the disciples. It makes sense that Peter would be there. John is there. 
And, and as we see elsewhere, John is one of Jesus' closest friends. He is the beloved disciple, as he calls himself in his gospel. Um, John will be the one whom Jesus leaves to take care of his mother when, when he's on the cross. John will write five books of the New Testament. It makes sense that John would be there. Peter writes three, two, and in Mark's gospel. He is the source for Mark's gospel. So three-ish books of the New Testament. It makes sense that he would be there. But then, then we have James there. James, John's brother. Why is he there? Why is he called up on that mountain with Jesus? Why James and not Andrew, Peter's brother? Or, or why not Matthew? Matthew's one of the disciples, isn't he? Why can't he go? I don't know. I just don't know. So that's just, the text doesn't tell us. And so, so that's, you're going to have to be stuck with that mystery there. Regardless, though, what we see happen on this mountain in the presence of these three disciples are events that Jesus intended to show them. There, this, this isn't accidentally happened to Jesus or coincidentally when he's up on that mountain. Jesus intends them to see these things. And here's why. Here's why. This revelation that they see is like a seal, like a stamp, a down payment on those prophecies that he gave at the end of chapter 16. So Jesus had told them, end of chapter 16, one day he's going to come as the divine judge in the glory of the Father with his angels. And he'd also told them that very soon he would be coming into his kingdom and so he takes them up on the mountain to reveal his glory to them as, as, as proof of what's to come. Proof of concept. To take them up on the mountain, reveal his glory, and for them to see Moses and Elijah and hear the Father speak. See, see what he's doing? He's confirming what he told them. What he told you is true. Here's evidence. Jesus said he would one day come in his glory. And now he's giving them a, a glimpse, just a glimpse, a sneak peek of what that's going to look like. He's building their confidence. Building their confidence in the promises that he's given to them. And that's why Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in each of those three gospels, this event, the transfiguration as we call it, this event in each of those gospels happens right after those promises to return in his glory. So th those gospel writers oftentimes will, will not have the events in the same order. Here they do, because they all want us to see that this is that seal, this is that stamp, the, the proof of concept of what he has just said. So that, that's kind of the big picture of, of what's happening here, why he's taking it up there. Let's look closely at the text. Look at verse 2. So Matthew 17, verse 2. The, the, the disciples see Jesus here for who he really is. His, his face shone like the sun, Matthew tells us. His clothes became white as light. So brightness, right? Very, very bright, like looking at the sun. The brightness was so memorable to the apostles that they never forget it. When Peter later writes about what happened here in 2 Peter chapter 1, he's going to say, he saw Jesus' majesty there. And then he's going to use, if you keep reading 2 Peter 1, like verses 16 and following, he's going to keep using light terminology. He's going to call Jesus the, the, uh, the morning sun, the light 
the, 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 sorry, the, not the morning sun, the morning star, the light that rises in our hearts, the brightness. And think, think of how John, who was also there, describes Jesus in John chapter 1. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If you, leave, if you read this account, the transfiguration, in Luke's gospel, guess what time of day this happens? Night. So they're up on the mountain at night, and the only light the disciples see is Jesus. And so John, I, I believe, looking back on that, is remembering that, the light that shines in the darkness. That's Jesus. The, the unforgettable brightness and majesty of that light shining from Jesus' whole person burned this, this permanent image in their minds and in their hearts. So much so that when they think of Jesus writing, when they're writing later on, when they think of Jesus, when they think of the light that he is, it's, it's almost like, when, I'm not asking you to do this, please don't do this. It's like when you look directly at the sun and then you close your eyes and what, you still see it, don't you? It, it's there for, for, for minutes. It doesn't go away. That, that searing on our, on our eyes, that is the, just a, a small comparison of what's happened to the hearts of the disciples when they see Jesus' glory here. In verse 3, Again, we're still moving through how, this, how the disciples are interacting with this. In verse 3, the disciples see Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. As if the light weren't enough, here, here are two of the most important Old Testament figures talking to Jesus. Now, how they knew or how we're to know that these guys are Moses and Elijah, I don't know. Again, there's a lot I don't know about this text. The text doesn't tell us. I don't think they're wearing name tags, but... But if, if we're not told how they know and we're not told what that conversation was about, then what can we conclude? Well, we don't need to know, right? God tells us what we need to know. The fact that it is Moses and Elijah and they're talking to Jesus is all we need to know. So what significance does this have? What, what are the disciples supposed to conclude about this encounter? why Moses and Elijah are there. Well, many say, this is most commentators if you read today, many say Moses is representative of the law, Elijah is representative of the prophets, Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets, not one iota will pass away until all is accomplished. Well, after Jesus converses with the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah, Moses and Elijah disappear Right? Leaving only Jesus as if to say, this is kind of one of those step back things. Moses and Elijah leave. Jesus is the only one left. Law and prophets are being fulfilled. Right? Jesus, the new covenant. He's, he's all that's left. That's the big picture, though. I'm kind of getting ahead of ourselves, aren't we? More directly, though, I want you to think of one of the themes as we've been studying Matthew. One of these recurrent themes. The scribes and the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they all have their own particular interpretation of the law and the prophets and what it's going to be like when Messiah arrives. And we've seen that the disciples have been consistently warned by Jesus, stay away from the teaching of these guys, from the Pharisees, 
from the way that they interpret the Old Testament. Stay away from their teachings. And so what, what the disciples are to see here is that Jesus' interpretation, what he teaches about the Old Testament being fulfilled in him, that's superior to everyone else's. So where the Pharisees might believe this or that idea about the Old Testament, about the Sabbath or fasting or whatever it is, well, Jesus actually knows Moses. You see the comparison? Jesus talks to Moses. He, he has a little bit of a superior edge over the Pharisees. And, and where it concerns how the prophecies of the Old Testament are to be understood, when all the prophets talk about the coming Messiah, well, Jesus knows Elijah. He talks to Elijah, the chief of the prophets. Jesus is teaching on Scripture then. What the disciples are to see here when Jesus is interacting with Moses and Elijah, Jesus' teaching on Scripture is to be held in much higher regard than the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees' teachings are because he knows the people who wrote it. And if that's not enough, as we keep reading there in verse 5, what happens? God says to them, this is my son, listen to him. Not the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Listen to him. But before we get there, before we get to that God speaking part, we have to, we have to see what happens with Peter again. Peter is going to pull Peter. Look at verse 4. He's going to jump the gun. So, I mean, you just imagine the setting Right, Jesus is there blazing with light. You've got Elijah and Moses are talking. And Peter, prideful Peter, has to say something. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, we don't know exactly what, what Peter's thinking. And the way that Mark tells this story, Peter doesn't even know why he said what he said. And Luke, when you read Luke's account of this story, it says Peter was tired. <laughs> Peter was very sleepy and confused. Regardless of what Peter's motivation is here, it's pretty apparent that he's trying to be helpful. I think we can all, when we read this, we see Peter's trying to be helpful, isn't he? But the fact that God interrupts Peter, while, Matthew says, while Peter is talking, it tells us, Peter's still not quite getting it. He's still thinking in a very human way about what's happening here. He's still interjecting himself into the situation, trying to fix it for Jesus, just in, you know, covering for Jesus, just in case Jesus isn't being a good host. Peter's going to jump in and, and fix things for him. He's still interjecting himself into the situation when God intends him to step back and listen and obey. Think about the last time Peter did. It's not that. You don't have to think very far back to Matthew 16. Jesus is giving instruction. Peter has the audacity to interrupt him, to pull him aside and correct him. This time, Jesus has revealed his eternal glory to Peter. And Moses and Elijah are there, and Peter tries to impose himself on the situation. What should he do? Want me to make tense? I can make tense. I can make, how about that? I'll make some tents. He just feels like he's got to do something, doesn't he? And just, God just blasts over him. This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
And we'll see all the, the rich theology built into that in, in a minute. But just imagine this, this booming voice coming from a cloud while you're talking. He says, listen to Jesus. I want to read for you a quote. I don't usually do this, but this is a really good quote. It's from one of the, the commentaries on this text. Listen what this, this pastor says. He says, instead of waiting to follow Jesus' word, Peter is too eager to speak. Peter's always so positive. He was positive a week before in trying to deflect Jesus from the negativity of the cross. And he's at it again, trying to do something upbeat. Peter is a living, breathing object lesson on the perils of positive thinking. <laughs> Love that sentence. Peter has not learned that leadership in the church is not, first of all, a matter of doing things for Jesus. It's, first of all, letting Jesus speak and then doing the things he says we are to do. Isn't that good? Take that in. Serving King Jesus. So it's not, not just for church leaders, for any of us. Serving King Jesus is not about doing things for Jesus. It's first of all, letting Jesus speak and then doing the things he says we are to do. That's why we as a church, we look to understand scripture first. We look to the, the Bible first. We listen to Jesus first. And only then do we try to apply anything. Slow down. If there's anything we can learn from Peter, it's slow down, listen to Jesus first, understand him, then act. Let me just ask you, because I know that some of you, not everybody struggles with this, but some of you have that Peter mentality. I've got to be doing something. You feel like that way? If you're not doing something, you feel like you're not a Christian. We've got to do something. We've got to get this program growing. or We've got to get that program going. We've got to start a ministry. We have to, to blaze a trail. We have to do something. We have to walk on water. And where we can't, if, if there's just nothing we can do, we're just going to have a meeting then. Right? And then we'll feel like we're doing something. Slow down, Christian. Slow down. You're not bringing the kingdom. Jesus says, slow down. Listen to Jesus. Read his word. Understand his word. Just soak in the glory of Christ. There's nothing wrong with that. Just take in the wonder and the majesty of who he is. Delight in Christ. Let your mind and your heart and your affections be transformed by who he is, not by something that you can do. <laughs> Listen to him, obey him. Even the father, I mean, think about what the father says when he interrupts Peter. What does he say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That can also be translated in whom I delight. The father, Lord of all creation, he takes delight in the Son. If God himself, think about this, if God himself can delight in the eternal Son and be satisfied simply in delighting in the eternal Son, 
Before time began, this is what the Father, Son, and Spirit were doing. Delighting in one another. If God can delight in the eternal Son, who are we? Who are we to be so busy trying to do things for Jesus that we fail to listen to him, to delight in him? So where are you, where are you petering about doing things? And all the while not actually listening to Jesus. And just consider this. Could it be, it's a question, not an accusation, but could it be that from a motive of pride, you're simply doing things for yourself? Trying to make yourself feel better, feel more approved. But listen to this, and we'll get to this later. A life transformed by Christ must first be encountering Christ. All right, so let's, let's keep moving on. So we have the glory that appears, and we have Moses and Elijah, and then the voice of God in verse 5, and then look at verse 6, and we're still tracking with the disciples. When the voice of God shakes them, what happens? They fall on their faces in terror immediately. And then in verse 7, Jesus came and touched them and said, rise, have no fear. He touches them, lifts them up. I like verse 7 a lot. I like it a lot. Look at how the good shepherd, the, the good friend comforts his disciples. These three guys are out of their minds in fear. They're absolutely terrified. This is the only place in Matthew's gospel when he uses that this particular language that he does, it is the maximum amount of fear that one can have. Think of the most afraid that you've ever been, and that doesn't even come close to what they're experiencing here. A bright cloud. And if you think about that cloud from Exodus 24, the people are there on the ground and they see this, it looks like burning to them. That's around these guys. And the voice comes out of the cloud and gives an audible command. And even, even if that voice is loving and merciful, that encounter with God is far too much for the disciples. And so they are on their faces in Jesus. Jesus, though, he knows that voice, doesn't he? He has lived eternally with the Father. He has heard this voice from eternity past. As the Father delights in him, he delights in the Father. And so Jesus isn't afraid of this voice. But look what he does. He comforts the disciples. He touches them and sets them at ease. We're going to see in a minute what he's actually doing there. And it's really neat. Jesus tells the disciples not to tell anybody about what they saw until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And we're going to get more to that next week as they come down the mountain. But, but what, they, what happens here is a clue for us as to why these men have been given the privilege to begin with. They, they, see, they see Jesus, they understand better the promises that, that he's made to them in chapter 16. That's what's going on in this event in its local context, in the context of the disciples and what they are able to discern, at least in that moment, okay? When we read Scripture, though, 
When we especially read the Gospels, we need to read the immediate context and then zoom out. We've got to see the big picture in order to see what's going on. So in the whole story of redemption, this is part two of the sermon now, in the whole story of redemption, in the whole big Bible context, how does this event fit in? So earlier we read Exodus 24. And what happened there? Moses, who's Moses? He's the one who leads God's people out of slavery in Egypt. Out of bondage in Egypt, he goes up on a mountain and then he takes how many people with him? Three. Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. Exodus 24 describes a covenant-making ceremony between God and his people. We read that. You saw this, this covenant-making ceremony. That was when God established the covenant between himself and his people, Israel. And he did that through Moses. And he's got Moses had, or three people with him. And here we have something very similar. Okay, Moses at that time was the mediator of the covenant. He reads the law. He's, there's, all these sacrifices are made. Moses sprinkles blood on the altar and he sprinkles blood on the people. And he says, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. He goes further up on the mountain alone, this time into God's presence. A cloud covers the mountain, envelops Moses, the glory of God, He's in that cloud how many days? Six days. On the seventh day, God calls out to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And there's lots and lots and lots of parallels with our text. It's not an accident. We're supposed to see that there are three with Moses and there are three with Jesus. And we are supposed to see that the cloud surrounding Mount Sinai is present and the cloud surrounding Jesus and the disciples is there. Matthew even intentionally says, Six, after, after the end of chapter 16, after six days, Jesus takes with him Peter, James, and John. And then what happens? God speaks out of the cloud. In Exodus 24, after six days, God speaks out of the cloud to Moses. You see that parallels? I'm not making this up. I'm not just searching for something here. This is very clear mirroring we're supposed to see this, and especially Matthew's readers, who would have been Jewish, would have known what happened in Exodus. And all of this cloud language, and these three people, and going up on the high mountain, all of that would have just, all the memories of Exodus would have been flooding back into their minds. So what does this tell us then in this whole Bible context? What's so important about these parallels? Well, for one, it tells us that there's a new covenant being made here. The old covenant, which was God's promise to be the God of Israel and dwell with his people and prosper his people as long as they would live in obedience to, them, to him, that covenant is passing away. And the new covenant, where God would forgive sins and dwell with his people and his righteousness would be in his people, that covenant is coming into being. And this is a transition time. So what's happening here? is God is introducing Jesus the Messiah as the mediator of the new covenant. Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. But when God spoke and said, this is my son, listen to him, he's replacing Moses. Just, let me say that he's replacing Moses. To us, we're like, yeah, big deal, we're Christians. 
to a Jew? God is replacing Moses. This is just huge news. He's replacing the old covenant mediator with the new covenant mediator, the one who stands between God and the people. In Exodus, whenever Moses was in the presence of the glory of God, when he would come out of God's presence, what would happen? He would glow. Moses would glow, and he'd have to wear a veil to cover it up. But here in Matthew, we see another parallel here. The glory of God is in Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus' face isn't glowing and reflecting light. His face is the source of the light. And there's such glory in him that his clothes are burning with the light. Light is emanating from him, not reflecting off of him. That's different. He's a greater mediator. Hebrews 1.3 says he is the radiance of the glory of God. Think, think now about that moment when the disciples are falling on their faces in the presence of God, and they hear God speak from the cloud. Under the old covenant, they stood condemned in the presence of God. But at the comforting touch of Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, they lifted up their eyes to see only him. So in that scene, Jesus is literally mediating between God and the disciples. That's, that's what we're supposed to see there. He's mediating between. He is the go-between. He speaks to us and comforts us. He gives the disciples comfort in their fear of being in God's terrifying and awesome presence. And so that there is a foreshadowing of what's to come. The old is going away. The new is rushing in. So what does that mean for us now? Right? We live under the new covenant, not the old covenant. Jesus is our mediator. We don't pray to Moses. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians. One of the things that, that I've been reminding you of, teaching you, is that the Gospels are the Gospel, right? This is where the good news is given to us. The epistles, so the letters after the Gospels, after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the epistles are commentary in many ways. Spirit-inspired commentaries on the gospel. So we, we, we read the epistles to help us understand the gospel and, and to apply the gospel. And so when I'm looking for an application from a text, the first place I'm going to go is, well, what does Paul say about what happened? What does Peter say about what happened? What does John say about what happened and how that applies to me today? And so we're going to do that. 2 Corinthians gives us a great application from this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, so remember, we've just talked about this. The old covenant is passing away. The new covenant is coming. The old covenant in Moses, you have the law, you have all of this, the, the implications of the law, and then you have Christ and freedom in Christ and freedom from sin in the new covenant. So think about that comparison we've just made. Think about what's happening there on the Mount of Transfiguration what's being introduced there. And now in that, let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 18. Apostle Paul speaking to us. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, 
came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory, and he's talking about the law, the old covenant, has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. And there's Jesus surpassing the glory of Moses. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more, much more what is permanent have glory. So that's our, a brief summary of what was happening on the mountain. Jesus replaces Moses. His glory is greater than Moses. The covenant is a greater, more permanent, more full covenant. And look what Paul says next, though. Here's our application. Verse 12. Since, and this is he's grounding his argument, since we have such a hope, what hope? Well, the truth of the new covenant. The fact that Jesus Christ is king, that he's forgiven us, that we live in his presence now. That hope. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So just one question for you then. Are you beholding the glory of the Lord? I know we're not on that mountain, right? We're not standing there with Peter and James and John beholding Christ, the King, but Paul is telling us here, this is after this event. This is after crucifixion, resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, the establishment of the church. Paul's writing to churches. And, he, and he's telling them, we can still behold Jesus. In fact, we can behold Jesus in a greater way even than Peter, James, and John did on that mountain. Because now we know more about what he has accomplished. And so his glory is greater. So where then? How do we do that? I'm asking you if you've done that, and you're probably like, how do I do that? So I'm going to get that. How do we do that? How do we behold the glory of Jesus if we can't climb the mountain and view him there? Well, our beholding is looking to Jesus seated at God's right hand now, where he is. Seeing him as king who reigns over all now. To behold the glory of Jesus now means to look to his majesty through the eyes of faith. That sounds kind of Christian-y, doesn't it? Let me see if I can rephrase that for you. Jesus right now is seated at the right hand of God. I can't, I can't simplify that anymore. 
He's on a throne. He's king. He's king over his kingdom, okay? That's who he is. That's where he is. We can't see that with our flesh. But faith is seeing that through the power of the Spirit. And so beholding Christ as he is then is seeing that. And if you need help, if, if your vision has grown dull, as our vision very quickly grows dull, well, we look to the Scriptures. We look to God's Word. When we see that the promises of the Old Testament are fulfilled and eclipsed by Jesus, then our eyes are lifted up to Jesus to behold Him as He is. When you behold Jesus, the Messiah, in His Word, when you see the wonder of what it means that He suffered and died for us, when you consider His resurrection, His defeat of death, you are pointed upward to see Christ seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning over all. You're reminded that he's your king. And what Paul tells us is that beholding the Lord in this way is transformative. It changes us. How are we made more like Jesus? By doing things for Jesus. No, by looking to Jesus. It is through our beholding through our seeing him as the radiance of God, the one worthy of your worship, worthy of your life, as Jesus taught us last week. It is through that, that beholding that the Spirit changes you. You become less of who you were in the flesh and more of who you are becoming in Christ. So how does this, how do we deal with our sin in this way? Well, are you struggling with anxiety? Behold Christ. The, the God of all who lifts up his disciples and says, do not fear. Are you fighting against bitterness? Well, behold Christ, the source of our hope who has forgiven you and who pleads with you to forgive others. Are you fighting some sexual sin? Well, look to Jesus, your King, and know that as he says, there is freedom in the Spirit who draws you to Christ. You're freed. You're freed from bondage to sin in Christ. You're freed to trust him. Are you, are you discontented? Do you feel like you're always wanting something more and you're never satisfied? Behold Christ. Behold Jesus Christ, the gospel gift from the Father in whom we have all that we need. And through whom we will one day have all that we can imagine. What can compare? Friends, the Christian life is seeing Jesus as he is, seeing him in that flash of glory that the disciples saw, the glory that is always radiating from him now. It is seeing him as our resurrected king, King over all, the one through whom we have peace with God, forgiveness of sins, the one whom, as, as we learned about earlier in Matthew, was constantly praying for us, who sustains our faith. There is majesty and glory in him alone. There is freedom from sin in him alone. There is a life of being changed from who you were without him to who you are in him when you behold him 
when you listen to him, when you respond to him. Amen? Well, in just a moment, we are going to participate in, in the Lord's Supper. And one of the things that we'll see in the Supper is remember how the new covenant is being mediated through Christ? In, in the old covenant, Moses had to come down and sprinkle blood on the people and sprinkle blood on the altar. In the new covenant, there's no sacrifice made except for the Son alone. He's the one. He's, he's the one, and there's no more sacrifices ever to be made again because of what he's done. And so our participation in the new covenant isn't through being splashed with a, like a brush of blood. Our participation in the new covenant is through taking Christ's blood. When we, every week or every month, when we take the Lord's Supper, when we take the juice, what does Jesus say? This is the new covenant in my blood. And that's the, that's the reminder to us that we are covered by him. So I'm going to pray, and then, and then what we're going to do, as we did last time, it's different because of coronavirus, but um, I'm going to invite anyone who is a participant in the new covenant. That means you're trusting in Christ as your mediator between you and God. If you know that's true, if you have beheld Christ as your king, then this meal is for you. This is for you, and we'd invite you to participate with us. If you're not trusting in Christ, if that is not the relationship you have with the Lord Jesus, if you hear about this and it's foreign to you, and you, you're growing in your faith, you're growing in your understanding, but you just don't believe yet. You wouldn't say, I'm a citizen of Christ's kingdom. Well, don't participate in the covenant. Just let... Let the, the, the congregation around you participate in it. Ask us questions later on. But uh, just remember that this is a family meal that we share together in Christ. So let me pray as we begin, and, and then we'll line up um, and try to keep the line short. So if there's a line, stay seated and then, and then go up. And we'll all take this together, okay? So I just want to remind you, we're going to take the bread and the cup together. So you're going to sit and you're going to wait a little bit, but um, feel free to sing with us while we do that. Our Father in heaven, you are holy. You are mighty. You are merciful. We had no, no part in what you had with the Israelites and Moses. No part. We wouldn't be here this morning. We wouldn't know you. We'd be worshiping false gods. We'd be worshiping ourselves. But you sent Jesus. And through Jesus, you sent this message of his kingship into all the world. And so now we know that he's our king. Now we know to rightly respond to you in worship and praise and thanksgiving because you have shown us mercy. We thank you. In Christ's name, amen.